One of Thompson's aims is to enable producers to deliver on the world's targets when it comes to the circular plastic economy. As part of these efforts, I am very pleased to introduce our new Circular Plastic podcast, where we will be engaging with both major market players and industry experts to share knowledge and best practices. In this episode, I will be talking to Christo Vide from McKinsey about trends within plastic types and feedstocks. I'm very happy to be able to uh, be joined by Christoph Vide from McKinsey today in our podcast. Christoph, welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good as well and looking forward to our um, little chat here. Our topic will be plastic in sort of broad terms. And uh, today we will look into what plastic industry today is and how it can transition into something more sustainable by looking at high level opportunities and barriers. But before we start our talk about plastics, Christoph, can you tell us a few words about yourself and McKinsey? Happy to. And first of all, thanks a lot for having me uh, in this podcast. I've waited a long time to be part of this. So I'm Christoph. I'm a partner at McKinsey. I'm based out of Germany. I spend all my time working with clients across the chemical industry and related value chains. So I go all the way down uh, even to customers of the chemical industry and supporting them, thinking about strategy, but a lot now recently on sustainability across automotive packaging and consumer goods. And for a couple of years, I have been leading our service line on sustainable chemicals, which includes all the topics across decarbonizations of assets, on plastic recycling, on sustainable feedstocks and the like. Great. Thanks a lot. And I think you've already mentioned, you know, some of the, the words or the terms and the concepts that we will be returning to uh, in this talk, like, okay, value chains, plastic, obviously, all the different industries using plastics like packaging and consumer goods, as well as decarbonization. But maybe starting from the beginning, when I think of McKinsey, you know, I think about Many times that I have seen the slides showing extremely high predicted growth for plastics in the coming decades, which comes from one of your reports and which I think people really tend to quote in their presentations, whatever the topic is, as long as it has to do with plastics. Some use it obviously in a positive context, some in the negative one. But I mean, can you tell us about what is driving that growth? Happy to. If you look back, historically speaking, plastic growth has been driven by material substitution and new applications, maybe for about five decades, five to six decades since the invention of, of plastics. Plastics is an extremely versatile material. And when it was invented, you know, many people thought about where can we use it? And surprisingly, many applications that have been using other materials in the past we're basically much better off using plastics, and that has driven most of the growth in the past. By now, we have actually shifted a bit. So the growth is today more driven by adoption, in particular in emerging economies. So the per capita consumption of plastics, in particular in regions like India and China, is still growing relatively fast. While in developed economies, the saturation of plastic consumption, so to say, has already peaked. And now we are basically only growing at an roughly at GDP, slightly below GDP level. So it is the emerging economies that would be driving this predicted growth. But in the past, this industry has seen 
quite a tremendous growth as well, right? Absolutely. Due to what you're saying, the material substitution and, and ever finding new applications in a way. That's right. Okay, if we think about production and maybe, you know, a brief list of, let's say, pros and cons of plastics when it comes to not only maybe production, but also the consumption that we see today. Uh, what can you tell us about that? That's a great question. So first of all, one has to understand what, what plastic actually is. So essentially speaking, plastics consist of very long molecules that are built mostly from carbon. So it's basically a long string of pearls of carbon atoms. And most of the plastic types used today have that kind of fundamental carbon-based molecule structure. Most of these carbon atoms, so to say, come from fossil fuels. So almost all polymers today are produced from uh, originally oil and are first converted into what are called monomers, so the basic building blocks that these polymer chains are built off. And then these monomers are converted into the final polymer. Finally, the polymer is then converted into what we know as plastic products today. So typically, you are exerting some sort of heat and mold um, the, the polymer chains into their final form, be it a children's toy or the bumper of a car. So that is how the production chain today works. And now you asked me about positives and, and negatives of um, how, how plastics are produced today. And maybe I'll start with the positive things. And I mentioned it already in the beginning. Polymers are extremely versatile materials. So the properties that you can design using polymers can vary quite a lot. And depending on which application you are using the polymer for, you can basically tailor the material properties to exactly what the application needs. So you can design polymers that have high impact resistance, that have high scratch resistance, that are flexible, like in flexible packaging. So you have a wide variety of potential properties that you can give the polymers. And that, that makes that material so helpful in, in many of our everyday products. They are also very light, in, in particular compared to, for example, metals, um, and they are extremely cost-efficient to produce. So that's maybe the kind of quick long list of positive attributes that plastics today have. There are a couple of downsides in particular regarding sustainability properties. So first of all, Plastic production is a very energy-intense production process. So the, the CO2 emissions that are emitted by the plastic production chain are relatively high, in particular compared to, to other materials. If you compare, for example, the, the pure production process emissions of fossil fuels, that would probably be around 0.5 tons of CO2 per ton of fuel. Plastics is five to six times as high. Obviously, we are not burning plastics um, the same way um, as we burn fuels, which is the main source of the emissions. But the actual process emission intensity of plastic production is pretty high. The second property of plastics that is creating a lot of scrutiny today is, is actually how we are treating plastic at its uh, end of life. Because for some of the plastic waste that we are producing every year, we are just simply not treating it properly so that it leaks into nature. And that is because of the longevity of, of plastics, a, a problem, because it really, once it is in nature, it sticks. And that is basically the source of a lot of the scrutiny uh, around plastics that we hear today. What I kind of see uh, 
as the good sides of plastics. I agree with you. And I do like the two arguments like, okay, this uh, lightness that they bring uh, into materials innovation, being able to then save us some of the carbon footprint that would come from transportation and other segments. And on the other side, I like the example of, uh, you know, food preservation, keeping food fresh for longer, therefore tackling maybe the world hunger or, or food distribution issues. But about this that you mentioned uh, of, you know, the, the downsides, obviously there's the energy consumption, but this carbon that you mentioned that is actually in the plastics themselves, that is probably what comes most apparent at the end of life, as, as you self say. So would you say that it is actually this end of life somehow scrutiny or how do we actually then release the carbon stored in plastic when we have finished using them that brings the, the negative publicity? I mean, it's kind of a fact that plastics are facing negative publicity. So can you say what you think is the reason for that? Happy to. And I think one needs to distinguish uh, a little bit the what you just mentioned on the carbon that is contained in the plastics and, and how that is released at end of life is actually not yet in the public domain as a point of scrutiny or, or discussion. Really, what has been driving the discussion on plastic was the, the waste problem. So the leakage into nature, which was mostly driven actually by countries in, in Asia where the highest pollution rates of plastic actually occur. The problem that you are mentioning is more of a forward-looking topic, I would say, because indeed, whether that fossil carbon that plastic is made of is actually also released into nature in the form of, of CO2 is not yet really investigated in, in depth. And it depends a lot on what the waste management systems in the different countries look like. Because you could also say, if we are landfilling all of plastics, the carbon stays in the ground, or you could say it goes back into the ground uh, where it came from. In waste management systems that are using a lot of incineration, like you know we, we use um, frequently in, in many European countries, for example, there indeed the burning of the plastic at the end of life even increases the CO2 footprint it, it has on the atmosphere. But that topic is relatively new, I would say. So it, the previous concerns you would say have been around the leaking into the environment. Maybe you hear, we hear a lot about the ocean plastics, right? And, or the microplastics. So that the awareness around that has been around for, for some time, correct? Absolutely correct. And, you know, both phenomena, so both the CO2 release of plastic and the pollution of plastic of nature can be solved by essentially the same levers, which is using the plastics again or recycling it, right? So hence, the debate may have started out as a debate on, on the waste or pollution problem and led to an outcry of increasing recycling rates. But increasing recycling rates are also going to help with the CO2 release that can potentially add on top of the, uh, of the process emissions that plastic anyway have. So... We kind of established that maybe there are two things to tackle should we ever want to decarbonize this industry. One would be the energy source. The other one would actually be to have a different or a better approach to the carbon used for production of plastics. That's exactly right. Going back, let's say a step back and uh, talking more about some numbers, let's say how much plastic is produced today and maybe looking at, at the plastic types that production 
comprises of. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Happy to. And I'll try to give a couple of examples for comparison because it's always a bit hard to relate to these type of volume numbers. But let's start with how much plastic there is around today. So depending on how you count, today the production of plastic is probably a little bigger than 350 million tons per year. As a comparison, if you think about aviation fuels, so aviation fuel production is roughly at the same order of magnitude. So just to give you a bit of a feeling, we are producing as much plastic almost um, every year as we are producing and consuming aviation fuels. And these production volumes are distributed across many different types of plastics. As I mentioned before, plastic is a super versatile material and the possibilities to produce polymers is, chemically speaking, almost endless. If you think about the main plastic types that we would typically like to distinguish, there's um, polyethylene, there's polypropylene, there's PVC or polyvinyl chloride, there's PET, so this is the, the polymer that is used for most beverage bottles, and there's polystyrene. Those are the main large volume plastic types. And within these plastic or polymer types, there's even a higher variety because even within polyethylene, there are hundreds and hundreds of different grades um, of polyethylene that add a bit to the complexity of that pool of different polymers. And on top of these main polymers, there's probably a tail end of, of more than at least 20 other basic polymer types that are used for, for their different performance properties in, in different applications. For example, the headlight of a car is typically produced from what is called polycarbonate. It's a different type of plastic than the ones that I mentioned before, but it is used because it has a very high impact resistance, right? So that particular property makes polycarbonate the plastic of choice, so to say, or polymer of choice for producing uh, automotive headlights. Just to give you a couple of um, pointers and, and examples. And it's interesting that we do have some dominant types of plastic and then this sort of tail end, which adds this complexity. Probably, you know, obviously the more things you need to find a solution for, the more solutions you may actually need. But maybe we will go back to that when we discuss how do you actually look into the end of life for all these plastics. And for now, maybe let's look at the usage of these polymers. So what are the industries that consume most plastics? You mentioned um, the automotive industries. Any, any other segments that use plastic maybe more than others? So actually, most of the plastics produced today are used for packaging applications. So for different types of consumer packaging that we find every day in the supermarket, uh, but also for industrial packaging like uh, industrial shrink wrap um, that is used to you know, secure the pallets that are shipped around. Uh, so these 50% these of plastic consumption um, go into these type of applications. The remaining 50% um, are in all the other segments, and there's no segment that is particularly big or as big as plastic packaging, but it's basically all the segments you can think about. So it goes over automotive to textile to medical applications to construction applications. So basically, if you look around in your everyday life, probably every product has some sort of plastic in it. So we are living with, with that material from the morning till, till the end of day. Do we see any trends in plastics production? 
sort of any materials that win over the others. Okay, now we, we address the five largest uh, polymers by volume. Obviously, those may have some properties that make them so popular. Any comments here? Do we see any sort of winning materials within plastics? I would say the consumption pattern of the different plastic materials has been relatively stable over the past decades. Many of them have been tailored to a particular end application, and that end application has been already the winning application, so to say, for the different polymers. The, the movement in terms of material substitution has basically ended. Also, in between polymers, there's very little shift, to be honest, to replace certain polymers by new ones. I think the debate now on our end-of-life treatment of plastics has revived the discussion whether we should actually think a bit more about which type of plastics we actually absolutely need to use. And that may trigger um, an intermaterial shift within polymers to make the whole system a little bit easier to deal with from a portfolio perspective. But other than that, I think, you know, the consumption pattern, as I said, has been extremely stable over the past decades. Well, I guess that that gives us sort of a, a good starting point because you know what the status is. So it's not unknown, but at the same time, probably we can do much better uh, in terms of designing for end of life, designing for recycling, making uh, maybe packaging from a single material and so on. Is that something that maybe we will see more of in the future? Absolutely. I think, as I said before, the, the whole topic of, as we call it, design for sustainability, so making the, the applications using plastics simpler in terms of their consumption pattern is, is absolutely top of mind, in particular of top of mind of many of the brand owners who are trying to consolidate their, their packaging portfolio, for example. In order to increase recyclability, that's a big topic and has been a big topic over the past, let's say, three to five years. Because in, indeed, there are certain types of plastic that are inherently difficult to recycle. And one of those types is the, the multi-layer flexible packaging that you mentioned. And in order to get away from these, we need to rethink how we are using plastics in the different applications that we absolutely need and that we like plastic for, for example, um, avoiding the food spoilage that you mentioned before. To kind of wrap up the basics on, on plastics and the production today, we, we mentioned the industries that are using it, then we know there are certain brands that use plastic, maybe even as their differentiator in terms of their products, uh, how they design them, how they place them on the market, how they do packaging. But who actually sort of drives that value chain and maybe where does the plastic production take place? Yes, and I'll try to explain a bit the value chain from, from the beginning to the start. So as I said, it starts with fossil fuels. So first, first of all, someone needs to take oil out of the ground and that is put into a refinery and convert it into a chemical feedstock, which we call naphtha. That chemical feedstock then goes into the production of, a, of the petrochemical industry. So the petrochemical industry takes a chemical feedstock and turns it into the polymers that we have been mentioning. These polymers are then the, the basic for producing plastic goods. And plastic goods are produced by um, the next stage in the value chain, which are typically called a converter. So a converter takes a polymer that comes from the petrochemical industry, adds certain additives or color, for example, and makes a final plastic product out of it. 
following the design of the brand owners that are at the very end of the chain that, that say, look, we want to have a packaging that is flexible and that seals off certain gases, for example, to make our final product the best product it can be. So these converters are basically designing um, those plastic products and, and manufacture them in, in that final manufacturing step. And then the product is uh, is created. So that's roughly the, the sequence. We have the refining industry that provides the chemical feedstock. We have the petrochemical industry that provides the, the polymers. And then those polymers are turned into a final plastic product by converters. And then those products are used and marketed by, by brand owners. That's That's roughly how the production chain looks like. But maybe just for the audience, I wanted to add a few names, uh, let's say, on the uh, pet camps. So those would be companies like BSF and Shell and Dow, Exxon, Ineos, etc. And then obviously the brands would be Coca-Cola or Ikea or Nestle or Procter & Gamble, etc. as well. So do we see any differences in terms of maybe plastic production or consumption? Well, actually, consumption you've addressed in the beginning, that we do see more uh, increase in consumption, maybe in uh, parts that are sort of growing economically still versus fully developed economies like Europe or the US. But what about plastics production in terms of feedstock and the variability there and, and waste management? Do we see any, any geographical differences there? Yeah, there, there are certain differences. In essence, polymer production works the same way almost across all regions. The only difference is the feedstock that is used. So there are certain regions of the world that are not using naphtha as a main feedstock for polymer production, but um, ethane, so a, a component of natural gas. That's, for example, the case in, in the US, where, where most of plastic production actually is done from ethane. And it's also the same in, in Middle East, where the rest of the world is typically using naphtha as the chemical feedstock to, to start with. But the production is pretty much the same. It's a high energy intense process um, that produces respective monomers. And then those monomers are converted into polymers, but the same way everywhere in the world. And in terms of end of life... Do you see any differences also, let's say, between Europe and the US, Asia? This is probably the biggest difference in how we are using plastics today. The, the end-of-life treatment varies tremendously across regions. Where re Europe is, is striving for a very high recycling rate and is already on a good path, let's say, uh, to reach high recycling rates, the US, for example, is mostly using landfill um, for the, the end-of-life treatment. So... In numbers, in the US, only about 10% of, of plastics are actually recycled, whereas 90% actually go into landfill mostly. In Europe, that share is, is much higher in terms of recycling. So in, in Europe, we are roughly recycling around 30% maybe um, of, of the plastic that goes to waste. And uh, a lot of the rest, we are actually incinerating or landfilling. But you know, our recycling share is, is much higher. In developing economies, the picture is again different because there we also still have a high amount of unmanaged waste, for example, that doesn't go into any structured waste treatment system. And then different shares depending on the country on how much is recycled versus incinerated versus landfilled. So, so that is really the biggest difference on how we are treating plastic today. That's the, the end of life. Thanks a lot. I think it's a very good overview. 
The only thing is that I don't think there's a consensus on how much is actually recycled. But uh, sometimes I'm skeptical about, let's say, the figures surpassing 15, 20% even. But certainly there is a momentum. So now that we mentioned recycling, what recycling pathways are you following at McKinsey? And, and can you tell us a little bit about yeah, what is the state of the art uh, within recycling today? Maybe we can focus on Europe, given that there is a number of initiatives. Absolutely. So the predominant technique to recycle plastics today is what is called mechanical recycling. So with that recycling technology, essentially what you do is you take the plastic products uh, at the end of life and you chop them into little pieces. And then since plastic is uh, can be remolded into a new product, you can remold those chopped plastic parts, so to say, into, into new products. And that process is, is called mechanical recycling. There are a couple of emerging technologies that will for sure be needed to go to higher recycling rates because mechanical recycling is fundamentally limited in how much it can actually take uh, in terms of end-of-life plastic waste. Um, it has to do with, a, with the quality of the material you can achieve with mechanical recycling uh, it also has to do with the waste management systems that we have and how much material they can deliver at a high enough quality to mechanically recycle it. Those new emerging technologies, they, they go a step further back in the value chain of producing plastics. So there are, there are two basic types of these technologies. One is called monomer recycling, which basically decomposes the polymer into its constituent monomers. Um, so in, in a prior stage, so to say. And that technology typically only works with, with polymers that have the right chemical structure. For example, PET can be monomer recycled in principle, although those technologies are still in a very low technical maturity stage. And the second um, advanced recycling technology is what is called feedstock recycling, where the polymer is taken even one step further back, so to say, in its life cycle, to something that is relatively comparable to oil. Yeah? And, and that you can do with polymers like polyethylene or polypropylene or polystyrene. So essentially those polymers are heated up um, and they turn into something that is like an equivalent to oil. There are other methods that also can bring it back to a state of a, of a synthesis gas, but those are even less mature than the feedstock recycling processes I described before. My impression is that the mechanical recycling can work really well in some cases. I have seen at least a great growth within pet recycling over the years, follow having a, sort of being in a position to follow that. And uh, I wonder sometimes, yeah, is it due to the collection schemes or is it due to the technology? You did mention the waste management and getting sort of uh, hold of those right streams that you need to recycle as, as a critical factor. So it, it's probably a mix of somehow getting your feedstock right and the right technology. That, that's, exactly, that's exactly right. Uh, I think for, for PET recycling, all the things that need to fall into place for a circular polymer chain actually fall into place. And it starts with the feedstock collection system, which is a super separated waste stream in, in many countries, to um, the, the type of the polymer, right? So most of PET is, is non-colored, very simple polymer without a lot of modification. 
And then the recycling process works extremely well on this type of high quality separated waste stream. Those are all the bottles that we put in, in separate bins, right? Exactly. And uh, that we all know. So that there is a success story, let's say, within uh, recycling. So now the question is whether the monomer recycling you mentioned and, and the feedstock recycling can also turn into uh, success stories and help us to, to recycle way more than, than we are today. And how do you see adoption of these new solutions? across the value chain? I mean, how fast can it happen? Where are we now? And where where do you see the bottlenecks maybe? So as I said, indeed, both monomer and feedstock recycling will likely be needed in order to go to a maximum amount of uh, plastic circularity or plastic recycling. Most of today's mechanical recycling works on the very high quality fractions of plastic waste, as we, as we said. The other two technologies actually supposed to work on the lower quality portions in the plastic waste stream. And that is fundamentally what they are designed for. Obviously, these technologies are very new from a chemical industry innovation standpoint, um, at least. Many of the monomer and feedstock recycling technologies are not older than 10 years, which is relatively short compared to an, to an average innovation cycle of the, of the chemical industry. The current rate of adoption of these technologies is still, however, limited for several reasons. So first of all, the technology maturity is, is one of the core bottlenecks. And in the end, what these technologies need to achieve is they need to take a relatively unspecified pile of plastic waste and turn it into something high quality that can be used in the chemical industry, which is very particular on what type of products they can use in their chemical processes. So the plastic recycling process needs to turn something very variable into something very consistent. And that is not easy to do from a technology perspective because plastic waste is inherently dirty and inherently inconsistent in the quality that, that you can get. So there are a couple of technological challenges that still need to be solved. Some are more in the pretreatment of the plastic waste to increase already the, the quality that goes into the chemical process. Some are concerning the post-treatment of what comes out of the chemical process to make it really usable for the chemical industry. And that kind of technology sandwich is not yet fully defined and not yet fully designed, um, which is one of the, the core bottlenecks. The second bottleneck is the actual access to the plastic waste, because many of the waste systems that we have across countries are not built for aggregating large amounts of plastic waste that would then be suitable to go into a large-scale and efficient chemical process. And that is a bottleneck that typically the chemical industry has challenges solving. So the problem is more on the side of the waste management industry, which is not used or trained or has historically not been able to aggregate these, these type of volumes only on plastic as a material from a very mixed waste stream to make it suitable for, for an actual chemical conversion step. I think those are probably the two bottlenecks that are, that are most important to call out here on the adoption of both the technology, but also on the scale up in terms of volumes on the waste side and on the recycling output side. I mean, that's very interesting. So I guess you're saying, okay, that these technologies can kind of free a lot more waste for recycling. However, there are challenges both in terms of technology maturity per se, but also on the ability to upscale and have economic 
benefits by running large-scale operations sort of in order to also compete with the industry that is very much built around the economy of scale in a way. That's exactly right. Given those bottlenecks in mind, I mean, who are the players that we do see now? Who is then daring to go into this and build, let's say, a new value chain based on recycling? Great question. So there are actually many players involved, both from the traditional petrochemical side, but also from um, the waste management industry, for example, that also has understood now that there are new ways to unlock the value of the waste material that they possess and they collect every day. If you if you think about a couple of players that have publicly announced um, their activities in feedstock recycling, for example, it would be Borealis, it would be Lyndell Basel, which also already partnered, for example, um, with Suez, setting up a JV in mechanical recycling as one of the starting points already a couple of years back. But also virtually every other petrochemical company is looking into feedstock recycling today. On the waste management side, similar picture. So Suez, I already mentioned as, as one of the waste managers that is looking into chemical recycling, but also the big waste managers from Germany, for example, such as Remondes and Alba, are looking into, into chemical recycling and have been looking into it for, for a couple of years now. In the US, similar picture, the, the two large waste managers there, Waste Management and Republic, I'm sure they are also looking into ways to go into feedstock recycling because, again, it's going to increase the portion or the value of the very plastic waste that they are collecting. So basically, this uh, chemical recycling, which then goes via the feedstock, which is already or equivalent to what the pet chems are used to using as feedstock for their plastic production is putting them in a, a driver's seat in a way because they can reuse their existing assets and they just need the actual feedstock, which is waste, in order to then kind of deconstruct that into whatever they can feed to produce new plastic. And then they're kind of trying to form alliances in that segment. That is exactly right. And there's a third interesting group of actually new actors in these value chains, which are the technology providers. So the technology that you need um, in order to do feedstock recycling, as I said, is, is not so old. But since, you know, roughly 10 years, new technology companies actually emerged that try to design these new chemical processes. Plastic energy is one interesting example in, in Europe or Quantafuel would be a second one. These technology companies are trying to design um, feedstock recycling processes that then exactly produce the feedstock that petrochemical companies can, can use. And that's a very vibrant, so to say, uh, space of innovation and has been over the past couple of years. So it's like uh, there's waste, then there's technology, then you get to the feedstock and you have your pet chems making new plastic out of something that actually used to be waste. Exactly. Maybe just to be fair also to bio-based carbon and not to forget uh, that option as maybe a decarbonizing method or, uh, you know, something to tap into for the pet chem industry. How much of the future, let's say, carbon for the pet chems and production of new plastic would be coming from bio? Do you see any movements within bio-based plastics? Are those viable? I mean... Can they be reused and recycled as well? 
So first of all, I would always differentiate two types of, of bio-based plastics. So the first type is bio-based drop-ins. So that basically means that you're producing the very same type of plastics that we're producing today, but instead of using a fossil feedstock, you're using biomass as a feedstock. So same polymer, you can do the same applications with it, but it comes from a bio-based feedstock source rather than a fossil feedstock source. Those products can be and need to be part of the solution if we want to go to a net zero world. Um, and I'll explain why that is the case in a second. The second type of bioplastics are new bio-based polymers. So where you're using part of the molecules that appear in nature to build new polymer types that are not used today. So one of the interesting examples is uh, a polymer called PLA or polylactic acid. So it uses um, lactic acid as the monomer to make a polymer that is called polylactic acid. These new polymers have basically two basic challenges. One is adoption will simply take a bit of time because new polymers need to find applications where they are more useful than existing ones. And that can include both the properties of the polymer, but also its, its carbon footprint where those new bio-based polymers are clearly advantaged. The second piece is while bio-drop-in polymers would actually not increase the number of polymers that we are using even further, new bio-based polymers would actually increase that, that um, variability again, right? So we would even have more polymer grades to deal with also at end of life. And if we are not able to separate those polymers from each other, you know, they would probably add more complexity than they are solving anything for us. So, so those two problems are inherent to new bio-based polymers that have not been there today. So that needs to be dealt with in the end. Bio-based, however, needs to be part of the solution because as long as we are taking fossil feedstock out of the ground to produce plastics, we are going to increase the, the net fossil carbon content in the atmosphere. And that can only be avoided if the polymers were, that we still need to produce because we cannot recycle each and every piece of plastic comes from bio-based sources. So that's fundamentally why I believe that bio-based polymers will play a role. A role and they can already today play a role because we can produce bio-based polymers already today but again also that adoption has not uh, been taking place at scale up until today with very few exceptions like PLA which is produced at some industrial scale already. So bio will play a role to kind of top up the carbon that we need given that we cannot recycle with 100% efficiency even once we actually get there that we have the system in place and can kind of have the waste available, technology available and, and maybe even economics. You mentioned that, okay, there is something about the future and how how will it look? It will probably look significantly different than, than what we have today. Do you follow sort of who is the front runner? Who are the first movers in this transition to both uh, recycled plastic and bio-based plastic? So you mentioned, okay, there's maybe a few exceptions within bio-based. Are there some exceptions in general in the plastics industry where you see that uh, some companies are being able to capture some benefits by moving into this space first. If you look at what many brand owners have already 
committed, you basically see that across the board, everyone is striving for a more sustainable use of, of plastic across different dimensions. That includes making the products they are putting on the market more recyclable to start with, um, but also using more recycled content or even using bio-based materials. So if you look at what brand owners are committing, you will find for every single one of them that they have some target on plastic circularity. Interestingly, the progress has been relatively slow still. The, the commitments or the first commitments are probably five years old. And the, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation has been a great vehicle um, to basically capture those commitments and also follow up on them. And they have just recently published their, their third progress report. And if you look at it and you compare what brand owners have committed and how far they got, you actually see that more than 80% of the brand owners with their current trajectory on using or going into more plastic circularity are behind their commitments, right? If you would just linearly extrapolate the current progress versus their goal, then more than 80% would not achieve their targets at the current pace. And that is, that is clearly the, the issue that, that many of them are, are fighting with. And the reasons for that are manifold, so to say. Clearly, there's a lot of interest in doubling down and, and accelerating going into plastic circularity for, for many of those brand owners. Okay, so there's actually sort of a willingness to be the first mover. I guess some of these targets that you're mentioning are voluntary. They're actually setting them as targets to themselves in order to be differentiated from others and, and have it as an advantage towards their customers. But maybe it's kind of the supply that is uh, not there yet for many reasons, as you say, uh, and some of those we touched upon today in terms of, okay, how much waste is actually available at the right specifications and conditions and how, how the technology actually fares. But what would you say about the risk willingness? Because it looks like, okay, you actually do need to do some things differently and maybe there a bit more, given that maybe economics are not in place, maybe not even the technology readiness. So how risk willing is this industry, this value chain today to become more sustainable? I think many actors in today's plastic value chains are relatively conservative in the business decisions that they are taking. But now that this bottleneck or this shortcoming, so to say, between commitments and achieving those commitments becomes more and more apparent, I think the willing willingness to take higher risk is also growing because I think one of the key problems, as you described, to get to higher recycling rates is that the supply is simply not there for the various reasons that we discussed. And many of the, the actors in these value chains now recognize that it can be a strategic advantage to occupy those supply sources or even build new chains because if you are first, few others can actually do it and that gives you a strategic advantage. So that race of securing these advantaged positions, so to say, has, has now started, that people are actually seeing how difficult it is to increase recycled content supplies, um, for example. So I, I think we will see a lot more of these type of races going forward and the, the willingness to take higher risks also when it comes to payback of investments will, will actually increase because these commitments, you know, many of the brand owners will have difficulties taking them back. Right. I think that is the one thing that is very clear in this race. So those things that you mentioned before, the 
partnerships between, let's say, petrochemicals uh, and the waste management. Those were probably not there before. Those are some of the new things that are actually happening across the value chain. Exactly. Very atypical alliances that we have seen over the past years. So can you actually foresee the plastics production industry going net zero? I mean, what does it take? What more does it take, let's say, other than these uh, new alliances? And when could it possibly happen? From a technology perspective, it is actually possible to go net zero for the plastics industry. The problem is, in the end, scalability. So scalability when it comes to recycling with the access to waste feedstock, but also scalability of just getting your process emissions further down. We, we said in the very beginning that plastic is a highly energy-intense process. And in order to decarbonize this, these type of processes, it will take some time and also some, some additional innovation before we can really claim net zero of the plastics industry. And that will take time. The, the interesting thing is that while the average industry will take time to overall go to net zero, maybe up until 2050 and beyond, the opportunity for people going net zero earlier, so be faster than the average, is what makes this race so interesting. And I think we will see players who are going to successfully claim and establish value chains that are net zero far before uh, we are hitting 2050. Whereas the overall industry may take that long or even longer to, to really go fully net zero. So I think we're, we're nearing the end of our talk. But before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you um, about policy. So how is the work on policy supporting this transition into more sustainable plastics and circular plastics? Yeah, great question. I think... Since the whole public scrutiny started, but also slightly before, we have seen a wealth of activity from the regulator side, in particular in Europe, but it's now also starting in the US. Even China put up new regulations that, that foster certain parts of sustainable plastics, for example, biodegradable plastics. My key concern on the regulatory side is that it's very hard to set up consistent policy frameworks that achieve the right thing. Right now, we have a wealth of different policies that are influencing different parts of the plastic value chain from collection to single plastic bans to CO2 prices, which you know influence the, the process emissions. We have charges on potentially charges on waste incineration. We have recycled content requirements, right? So very different policy frameworks and policies. And it's really hard to make this consistent so that the polymer industry or the, the plastics value chain knows what to do and what to achieve. And that, I think, is one of the big challenges because this industry is complex and we are trying to solve many things at the same time, that policymakers you know, are, are trying to come up with frameworks that heal a lot of the symptoms, so to say, without having a fully consistent way of regulating the industry so that we are moving in a, in a joint incentive system to go to further plastic circularity. I think that's, that's a bit what we are seeing at the moment, but it's moving, right? I mean, it's, there's no year where not a new policy framework comes out and the EU is in, in particular, particularly active in that. Well, I guess it is a little bit overwhelming for both sides somehow because we have so many solutions as we, we touched upon some of them today. Obviously, the recycled carbon or recycled plastics, there you have mechanical and chemical 
then chemical could maybe be, you know, the monomer and the feedstock, and then you have the bio-based plastics. So I guess it's not an easy task for anyone, but we can only hope for some clarity and harmonization because that would be of great help. So uh, let's see what happens. That is yet another, I think, area to follow and uh, see how things develop. I agree. So what has basically changed since McKinsey report in 2016, Rethink the Future of Plastics? So where do you see the main activities for sustainable solutions and where do you think the industry will be in uh, 2050? Fundamentally, I think what we published back then still holds. I think what has changed is that we have become less bullish on the speed of adoption in particular of the new technologies. So now over the past couple of years, we have seen how long it actually takes to you know, finally develop the right set of technology solutions to really do advanced recycling going beyond polymer recycling or mechanical recycling. So the reality has taught us that it will take a bit more time. And hence, we also adjusted our forecasts, which have been much more bullish um, five years ago compared to today. But I think that the fundamentals of the industry transition are still there, right? It's still all about expanding our waste management system. It's building up new technology chains. It's increasing the share of mechanical recycling as much as possible. And the demand signals are now clearer than ever before. So I think that, that are, those are the key changes that we have seen over the past couple of years. Thanks. So, so quite some good news and a lot more that needs to happen. It will only be uh, very exciting to, to follow up. Thanks a lot for the chat today. I think we tried to cover quite a number of topics, sort of high level, but it is a complex overview and I hope we managed to give a better picture to our listeners. Thank you, Christoph. Have a nice day. Thank you very much for having me. Milica, that was a really interesting conversation with Christoph. What are your key thoughts on this? Well, to be honest, I, I don't have one. I probably have many. I really think we covered uh, so many topics. Christoph went to great length to kind of help us and the listeners to understand the plastics, where they come from and the potential they hold. So I think my, my take would be that it was simply an interesting conversation. Yes, it was. I think also when Christoph talked about the upsides and downsides of plastic, You have that it's cost efficient, it's light, but on the downside, it's fossil primarily and it emits a lot of CO2. And I sort of noticed that the plastic itself, if you compare it to a fossil fuel, it has a higher CO2 footprint in itself. Yes, I guess what he was referring to was that you actually have a lot of carbon embedded in the plastics, right? So if you don't uh, use them. I mean, if they don't stay in a use period for a long time, you're returning that fossil carbon very quickly in your cycle. They're hitting the end of life quickly. And unfortunately, as we're not recycling much, that end of life is often incineration where your CO2 goes directly to atmosphere. So I think that is the key, trying to basically keep the carbon that is embedded in plastic reused and circulated, recycled essentially yeah. for as long as possible. Because it's not only sort of the carbon chain that consists of the plastic, it's also the process itself that makes the plastic. That is true. So you also have the process itself that will be emitting some CO2, 
but that can be taken care of a number of different ways. So it's important for new plastic that we tap into the carbon that is somehow already in the plastic so that we don't continuously take the fossil carbon out of the ground to make new plastic over and over again. Yes. And I also thought that the plastic market itself is so huge. We talk a lot uh, recently about sustainable aviation fuel and and we need to fly sustainably and everything. And I think this awareness is also coming for plastic. But the fact is that the plastic market is just as big as the sustainable aviation fuel market, which makes it that much more important to solve. Yes, the thing is like, what are the alternatives and also how much is it going to grow? Because you mentioned yourself these nice things about plastic, right? So there are actually some climate benefits that you get or even other kind of, if you look at sustainability development goals, other benefits. For example, less food goes to waste since we have plastic. So how do you actually make them more sustainable to keep them there? Still, yeah, it's and a balancing if, act. Yeah, and if they continue growing, because you have the growing middle class, for example, we will see a large growth. So the same as in sustainable aviation fuels, right? We are at some level now, and you have to continue with the growth and make it sustainable. Yeah, it is. A, it is tremendously interesting, and also in light of CO two emissions, when you burn it off, it just underlines even more how important it is that you don't incinerate plastic; you reuse it in one way or the other. Yes, yes. And you have options, right? It's just about yeah. scaling it and uh, being more structured, serious about it. I think, it, well, starting yeah. from everyone's responsibility to all the large yes. initiatives. Yeah, and of course, there's an obvious concern about plastic leaking into nature. That's one part of it. But also, I think I got very concerned when I heard that only 30% of plastic is recycled in the EU. And I think the EU has been the strictest on the legislation on this. And and we're only at 30%, which means that there's 70% missing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, again, you have some types of plastic like packaging where you will see probably those kind of recycling rates of 30% where we are somewhat educated also as consumers, you know, yes. that we have to put it in the recycling bin and so on. But there is so much of it that is all around us again in our apartments, you know, TVs, uh, other appliances, obviously. And and that is way more, I think, difficult also to kind of tap into and find a solution. So all of that is ahead of us uh, yeah. in, a, in a sense, like looking for a solution. And, and also in, 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 in the U.S., I, I think you mentioned it was 10% recycling yes. and then 90% or the rest is landfill which is also, I would say, a, a temporary solution that needs to improve. And in developing economies, it might be even less. Definitely. I, th- I think it is less. And I agree with you. I mean, incineration, obviously not sustainable, but uh, you can have some energy recovery from it. So yes. some heat um, and potentially electricity generation. And that is where it still is above landfill where you can have leaks and other threats. So the yeah. numbers are are pretty scary. Yes, they are. And also because you don't want to abandon plastic because it has such a great impact on our living standards. I think also when, when we then talk about recycling, the different kinds of recycling, mechanical recycling is good, but it's limited. And it's also a certain 
amount of plastic that you can mechanically recycle and that it's typically mechanically recycled plastic is low quality, right? Is, is that correctly understood? Yes, I think that's still kind of where we are. Mechanical recycling is also getting better. Um, I think Christoph also referred to that. So we will probably see some high value applications and some closed loops with plastic that is mechanically recycled. And again, there will be improvement in the future. However, we don't really have a good solution in mechanical recycling when it comes to mixed plastic streams. So obviously, you know how difficult it is to find the right bin, for example. Where do you throw things? You contaminate your plastic streams so easily that that is really the challenge that requires other solutions. And again, yes, mechanical will, you know, will continue growing. It's very sustainable, but it is typically not famous for delivering top-notch quality and you do lose some material. Yeah. I also think about uh, this monomer recycling is is quite interesting uh, with the background in chemistry. Uh, (laughs) I like the idea of you having long chains and then you split it up into the monomers again and then you can put them together in a new way. But again... Uh, as as Christoph said, it only works with a few types yeah. of plastic. And again, you have this contamination issue that that if you are mixing PET with PVC or polypropylene or something like that, then so it's a delicate <laughs> recycling technology. Yeah, yeah, but I guess that a little bit goes the same for um, that recycling as you would have for mechanical. You would need to pre-sort and then apply it somehow to a specific plastic type or polymer type where you cut that particular type in, as you say, monomers, you have some purification during that process and then you put it back on the on the plastic market. But it's really the contaminants that you would have, you know, that have been added maybe unintentionally or throughout the, the lifetime of that plastic, throughout the use period that are not necessarily big but still a big question mark if you want to use, for example, that material in packaging. So there are so many unknowns, right, in that whole uh, recycling technology space. I think also it was interesting to hear about feedstock recycling, which is something that that we know stuff about, is that when you liquefy the plastic, so it goes back to some sort of naphtha that can then be, again, fed to a steam cracker. I think that also has pros and cons and might not be that widespread yet. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that also has the potential, probably also specifically in the mixed plastic waste streams. Yes. Right, because you can, NAFTA is the starting point of so many plastic types. So that's a kind of a common denominator. So you can have a broader feedstock range, but there's some way to go. I, I give you that. And uh, yeah. I think that was also very interesting to hear from Christoph that, you know, there are solutions, but... Yeah, they each have their own limitation yes, and yes. challenges. So, but I think what uh, at least comforts me some is that a lot of people are working on this, oh, yes, on solving. Yes. And and this focus that we have seen increase over the last years uh, is quite big. Well, that just about wraps up this episode of our Circular Plastic podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and a special thanks to Christoph Vide for his time and insights. Stay tuned for the next episode where I'll be talking legislation in plastics with Sylvain Vediev from Topsoil. And don't forget to share this episode with colleagues and other interested parties. Bye-bye!